Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in the ninth verse. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Ohima. The New Testament reading is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jill. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John twenty nineteen through 23. It was still the first day of the week, that evening while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and when the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. But if you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So Father, we ask that you would open our eyes as we hear the scriptures being read and taught today, open our eyes to see Jesus, open our ears to hear your word to us, and open our hearts, Lord, that we would allow you to challenge us and change us, transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, 
Well, basketball fans everywhere may remember in June of 2007 when LeBron James led the Cleveland Cavaliers to their first trip to the NBA Finals. And the reason you might remember it is because LeBron was this kid who grew up in the Cleveland area, was this high school legend, and entered the NBA draft right out of high school. And as fate would have it, the Cleveland Cavaliers had the first pick of the draft that year. And so they, they drafted LeBron, and it was this huge sports story. If you're not a sports writer, here's the crash course into sports journalism. Um, they, they called him King James. And it was this idea that the reign of the king had begun, and it was what the basketball world had been longing for since old MJ, Michael Jordan, had retired uh, however many years before that. And so there was all this hype and anticipation. And so when 2007 came along and the Cavs were in the NBA Finals, pretty much because LeBron had put them on his back and single-handedly beaten the Detroit Pistons, if you remember that incredible Game 6, I digress. And so Nike launched this campaign called We Are All Witnesses. Now, when we hear the word witnesses, we don't use that word too often in everyday life. Here we are in this series on the Holy Spirit. We're in week three of this. We started by talking about what the, what, what the official statement of faith is about the Holy Spirit. We talked in week one about how Christians said the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. And we, we use that language as a way of encountering the person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in week two, we went back to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. And now as we move on, we're looking through the book of Acts here where Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, says you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. And it's not normally a word we use in everyday life until Nike launched its campaign in 2007. Witnesses of the King, and this is how Nike explained it. They said, the witness campaign pays tribute to James and acknowledges the legions of fans worldwide who are witnessing his greatness, power, athleticism, and beautiful style of play, to say nothing of the way he travels with the basketball, but never mind. And so they released these print ads and TV ads that had this, whole, this, this huge image that said, we are all witnesses. In fact, they didn't stop there on NikeBasketball.com. They actually had a witness board where fans could share their testimonies about what they had witnessed LeBron do. This is what it said on their website. It says, the witness board featured shared testimony from fans about James, as well as a running tally of witnesses as they are added. Now, I find this extremely amusing, because this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, an athlete who is heralded as the king who's arrived, and a campaign, a very savvy one, that then says, we are all witnesses to the reign of the king. And it says to me that when we hear the word witness, we immediately think spectate. We think watch, front row seats, because for all of the fans of LeBron James, they we're not on the court with him. The witnesses were not teammates. They were an audience. They were fans. They were spectators. And so when you think about Acts 1-8 and Jesus, the risen and ascending king, saying, you will be my witnesses, we wonder, is this about Jesus telling us to watch? Is this about Jesus saying, pull up a chair? It's about to get good, y'all. 
And if we think that way, no wonder we feel disillusioned about the world. And so when someone says, the Lord reigns, we say, yeah, right. Because if Jesus reigns, then why is there injustice? And why are the poor not fed? And why, are, why is there this and this and this and this? Because we're conditioned to thinking about a witness as a spectator. But listen again to Acts 1, verse 8 and 9. So Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So they are witnessing something. They're witnessing him being taken up into heaven. But what is the significance of this story? Our Old Testament reading this morning was from the book of Kings where Elijah and Elisha are traveling together and Elisha is sort of this understudy and Elijah is like the Jedi master. And Elisha says, I want a double portion of the force or something like that. And Elijah says, okay, here's how you'll know. You will have it if you see me being taken up. In other words, the key sign that you have been granted the spirit that was on me, the anointing that was on me, is if you see me being taken up. Now, many scholars and commentators say about this Acts passage that this is not just an ascension story, this is a succession story. And that's why Luke is borrowing a theme from the Old Testament of saying, Jesus, like Elijah, is about to leave but there's a, there's a mantle, there's an anointing that he's going to impart to his followers. And so just as Elisha saw, Jesus, saw Elijah ascend and then said, oh, well, good, the, the mantle has fallen on me. So in a similar way, the followers of Jesus watch Jesus ascend and then they know the Spirit is about to descend. What this means for us, guys, is that the ascension is about Jesus' enthronement and our empowerment. The ascension is about Jesus' enthronement and our empowerment. If we stop at that first half and say, oh, the ascension is Jesus ascending to the throne, that's great. Yay, God, would you hurry up and do some stuff? I guess you're not really going to do stuff. Okay, well, then can you at least just get us out of here? Right? But if we read the story with the eyes that these first listeners, my eyes and ears that these first listeners and readers must have had, we'll see it differently. That all of a sudden, the ascension is not just Jesus' enthronement, but our empowerment. How does that change the way you think about being a witness? It means then that to be a witness is not to be a spectator, but a participant in the arriving kingdom of God. Not a spectator, but a participant in. If we were just spectators, we'd say, oh, God, I'm, I'm going to be a witness. I, I, I've seen it. I'm going to see it. You go on and do your thing, Jesus. But no, there's an empowering presence that has come upon the church. Why? Because we get to participate in the work of the kingdom coming. We get to share in the reign of Jesus arriving on earth. So what does that look like? How do we participate in the kingdom arriving on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus taught us to pray like that, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Something has touched down here. Something has arrived here. And we get to join in on this reign. To be a witness is not just to be a spectator, but a participant. So how? I want to say three things about this. And the first is this. 
that part of how we do this is that we let the Spirit lead us outward. We let the Spirit lead us outward. Now, if you look carefully at that text in Acts 1, 8, and 9, Jesus says, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. There's a movement here beyond. So Jerusalem is this epicenter where the church life sort of begins. Judea is kind of their region. They're comfortable with that. But now why did you have to name Samaria? Because Samaria is that region where the half-breeds are, where the people who were left behind when others were taken captive by the Assyrians. Samaritans are the people who are half-breeds and lesser than, who think they worship the same God as us, but we know they really don't. And so as Jews, we kind of despise them, and we do everything we can to walk around Samaria to get where we're going to go. And Jesus says the Spirit is going to empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They're like, amen, Jesus. Judea, you bet. Samaria. Ah! And then he doesn't stop there. He says, the uttermost parts of the earth, which is a shorthand way of saying, even to the Gentiles, to the nations. Oftentimes in Scripture, that, that, that word is, is translated to us as nations, but for a Jew, it just meant the people outside, the Gentiles, the ones who are not covenant people. Listen. If we want to participate in the arriving kingdom of God, you're going to have to let the Spirit lead you outward to places that you're not so comfortable with, to people that you don't think belong in your in-group, to people who don't act like you, make choices like you, vote like you. (laughs) Wait a second, Glenn. I mean, I just don't feel like that really applies. Luke, when he's writing the book of Acts, that's his volume two. He also wrote a gospel, the gospel according to Luke. And Luke tells the story of Jesus' ministry as kind of moving from the outside to the center. He ends up in Jerusalem. Jesus' movement in the gospel according to Luke goes from the outer region all the way into Jerusalem. But volume two that Luke wrote, known as the book of Acts, is the outward movement. Listen. I think all the whole Christian life is both the inward movement and the outward movement. Every time we gather as the church on Sunday mornings, it's like centripetal force for all you sciencey people out there. It pulls you toward the center. We gather to the table. We remember our allegiance to Christ. We remember that we belong to the kingdom. We're re-centered by this, this force that pulls us inward. But then by the end of our service, you're being spun outward. There's a centrifugal force which spins you outward that says, okay, great, now be spun out into the world. Be scattered back to your communities, to your neighborhoods, to your places of work, even to your Samaria. And it might be worth, you know, when Pastor Evans says each week, take a moment and listen to whom the Lord would have you be given to this week. I know for some of us, we kind of have filters. We're like, well, no, not those people, Lord. Not the people whom I disagree with, not the people whom I despise, not the people who I do everything to avoid, not the people that I slander on Facebook because I don't actually know who they are. What if the Spirit wants to lead you outward even into Samaria and it makes you uncomfortable and it puts you around people that you don't really agree with and feel weird around, but it's the Spirit who sent you there. Secondly, 
flip over to Acts chapter 2. This is our famous story of the Holy Spirit, right? Acts 2 verse 1. When, they, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. How many times... Does a sermon on Pentecost stop right there? And we're like, oh, I love it. The house was shaking. People were like, blah, 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 blah. it was awesome. <laughs> so wait, wait a second, keep reading. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Can you imagine This was a feast where Jews who had been scattered into all different parts of the empire gathered together at Jerusalem to celebrate. And so these are people that speak different languages. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Which is like the New Testament equivalent of saying, aren't these like simple country folk? Like how how do they know? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's a lot of people. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. How many of you have spent time in another country where English is not the primary language? Do you remember the moment when you were there, like maybe two days, three days, the shine of being there sort of worn off a little bit, four days, right? maybe longer, a week, you know, and then all of a sudden you hear someone speaking English, and not just English, but American. <laughs> and you're like, oh my goodness, an angel of the Lord has appeared, <laughs> you know? Do you know where the Big Macs are? <laughs> you know. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe. And there's something about hearing your own tongue being spoken that you're like, oh, I'm home. And it could be the weirdest person ever. Like if you guys were hanging out in America, you'd be like, no, I'm, we're not friends. No way. But somehow in the jungles of Thailand, you're like besties, you know. Like, oh my gosh, we are like brothers. Why? Because they speak your language. This is what I want to say to you. The Spirit of God will give you words to meet people where they are. Pentecost is not just a story about ecstatic utterance. Pentecost is a story of how personal God is. Pentecost is a story about how God knows your language, your geography, your history, knows every detail about your life and is capable of meeting you where you are. Pentecost shows how deeply personal God is. So not only are we allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us outward, we're trusting the Spirit for words that meet people where they are. I appreciate so much all of the evangelism training that helps us think through a certain certain pattern and a flow of ideas. I think all of that can be very, very helpful. But I also know that in the end, God is not a one-size-fits-all God. That the way He calls people to Himself is deeply personal. 
He has a way of meeting us exactly where we are. And so these people heard their own, the mighty works of God being told in their own language. I love that. When I was a kid, our youth group uh, made us go door to door and ask and find a way to share the gospel with someone. I think it's, it, 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 all in all, I say this now, however many years removed, I think was a pretty good experience because it sort of forces you out of your comfort zone. It allows you to do point one, right? Let the Spirit lead you outward. But in the end, with me, it sort of uh, traumatized me. So I, I am now the person on airplanes where if there's a stranger, which there usually is, it's like hoodies up, headphones in, uh, I, I, I don't want to do this. I'm not the person, just to say, I'm not the person that's like, how can I find ways to ask them if they know where they're going if they die tonight? <laughs> Excuse me, sir, if this plane crashed. You know, <laughs> morbid evangelism tactics, you know. <laughs> and yet, I would like to suggest that it's, it's led us to this other extreme where we don't ever want to use words. And we're just sort of hoping that magically people will knock on our door saying, what must we do to be saved? <laughs> and, and God's like, why don't you do something in the middle here where you ask the Holy Spirit to give you words? Words for your neighbor. Words for your friend. Words for your coworker. What are the words to sort of draw them out, to show them that you care? And it might be that for weeks, the only words are words of comfort and encouragement and of life. It might be that for months, it's a word of friendship. It's a word that lets them know that Christians are not crazy. And somehow you're winning them over. Trust the Spirit for words that meet people where they are. There's a scholar who writes quite a bit about church history. His name is Alan Kreider. And this is from one of the articles that he's written about the church in the first couple hundred years of its, of its life. And he says, the church in the Roman Empire, this is before it became the official religion of the empire, was growing. But the Christians' focus was not on saving people or recruiting them, it was on living faithfully. I love this. In the belief that when people's lives are rehabituated in the way of Jesus, in other words, when people's lives are reshaped, reformed, transformed to actually look like Jesus, others will want to join them. This happened gradually, he says. One person at a time, largely through face-to-face encounters and not least from parents to children. I love this because sometimes the greatest evangelism efforts are all about everyone out there and we forget about the little people growing up right here, right? And And that really one of the most amazing gifts we've been entrusted with is to say the care of children is one of the great ways the church passes on the faith. But here he talks about these face-to-face encounters, one person at a time. Now, just, just to give you a scope of this, okay, last week I told you about the numbers of however many people got saved. That By 100 A.D. it was something like you know, 10,000, and by, by the end of 200 A.D. it was something like 100,000 Christians. But by, the end of, by, by 300 A.D., there's 5 million Christians. If you're a business person that likes to look at charts, it's like this. 1,000, 10,000, and then the next 100-year period, poof, 5 million. And Kreider says, because exponentially Christians began to trust the work of the Spirit through one-on-one, face-to-face encounters. They didn't have, and this is not a knock on evangelistic rallies, but I'm just trying to say to you, those things didn't exist in their day. 
They did this by their everyday interactions in the marketplace. They did this by trusting the Spirit to give them words. That, my friends, is something we need to reclaim. That is something that we've lost. So I don't want to use words. What if the Spirit would give us words to meet people where they are? The third thing, the third way of participating in the kingdom arriving on earth as it is in heaven is to live in a way that only makes sense if Jesus is king. To live in a way that only makes sense if Jesus is king. Look, there's lots of things that we can do that other people do as well. It's like, oh, well, that's normal. That, that makes sense. Well, I understand that and I understand this. But there are a few things that absolutely do not make sense unless you actually think there's another king. Now, here's the trick, you guys. Christianity is deeply personal, but we sometimes make the mistake of saying, well, if, he, if he's the king of my heart... That's all he's the king of. But actually the Christian gospel is not only that he's the king of your heart, but that he's the king of the world. In fact, it's the other way around. When you read the preaching in the book of Acts, the, 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 the early apostles start by saying, he's the king of the world, therefore let him be king of your heart. But I fear for us, 2,000 years later, as American Christians, we've just individualized it, spiritualized it, internalized it, and so he's the king of my heart. But whatever's true for you is okay. And I don't know if I really want to live all that different, because it's just my decision. Instead of saying, look, the radical proclamation of the gospel is that Jesus is the risen king of the world. And so whether you recognize it or not, we're going to live differently. In fact, every time the word witness is used in the book of Acts, it's something like 13 different times. It's in reference to the resurrection. They were witnesses to what God did, that God raised Jesus from the dead, and that was their head-scratching moment of saying, okay, so if he raised Jesus from the dead, something more is going on here than what we thought. He's much more than the sort of earthly messiah or the good rabbi. Something else is going on. And as they're struggling to make sense of it, they say, He's the Lord and King of the world. And by saying that, they were implicitly saying, and Caesar is not. Now, sometimes we think that Rome killed Christians because they just didn't like their religion. That is patently false. Because Rome tolerated all kinds of religions. There were all kinds of religions that were allowed to thrive in Rome. Why did they kill Christians? Because Christians, in their belief and in their practice, became separate from the empire. They were different not only from a worldly way of living, but they were different from the machine of power itself. And so Roman rulers said, wait a minute, if these people keep refusing to take part in civic duties and keep refusing to serve in the army and keep refusing to be part of the normal social functions of normal citizens then they're going to destabilize the empire. And so Rome said, let's kill him. In fact, the big test was to say, you don't necessarily have to walk away from all of this so long as you will burn incense to Caesar. So long as you'll do this, pledge allegiance, do this. And the early Christians said, no, we won't. We won't. And friends, this is so remarkable to us. Because can I tell you how I see it? Thank you. <laughs> I think 
for all of us, for many of us in this room, we're comfortable with being distinct from the world. We get it. Like, we're conservative. We don't live that moral, immoral life. We are distinct from the world. But we're in danger of not being distinct from the empire. And there's another group of Christians who'd say, we're distinct from the empire. We're always critical of government and all of this stuff. And we're always there. But they're not distinct from the world. And the early Christians were both. They didn't fit in anywhere. They weren't comfortably citizens of Rome, and they weren't comfortably like the people who lived with their own morals and values. There was a bishop in North Africa named Cyprian, and he lived in the mid-200s. In fact, he was an aristocrat who converted to Christianity, a remarkable conversion. He converted in A.D. 246 and became a bishop in A.D. 248, kind of the fast-track bishop version. And he was only around for about 10 years because he was martyred in A.D. 258. Ten years later. But he wrote this little pamphlet called On the Good of Patience. And he encouraged the Christians in North Africa to be patient and persistent in their distinctiveness. And he said, look, he's very aware that Christians were kind of looked at with scorn as being idiots and ignorant and not like the philosophical Greeks. And, and Cyprian said, you know what, Christians are, are philosophers not in words but in deeds. We may not have fancy sounding words, but we have remarkably virtuous lives. We love in a remarkable way. We serve in a remarkably different way. And he says, look, there are philosophers who are, who are known by their, uh, who, who boast about their virtues, but we practice these virtues. And then Cyprian says, there's actually the slogan among North African Christians. Would you like to know it? Slogan among North African Christians in the 200s, we do not speak great things, but we live them. Oh, that, would, that that would be said about us. We don't speak great things. Some of the things we believe as Christians sound totally foolish, but we live great lives. We live lives of remarkable love. And Cyprian goes on to outline three specific ways that Christians are, dis- are distinct. He says, number one, Christians resist temptation. They're able to control themselves from drunkenness and immorality. They don't give in the way that everyone all around them gives in. They're distinct by the way that they resist temptation. And then he says, secondly, they're distinct by the way they refuse retaliation. When they're being persecuted and scorned and mocked, Christians in the 200s, in that century of the sharpest growth of the church, that they went from 10,000 to 5 million, or 100,000 to 5 million, whatever it was. They were scorned and they were mocked, and they didn't say, well, let's just take a stand. We're being pushed to the margins. We're going to let our voice be heard. Cyprian says they refused to retaliate. They didn't resort to violence. They didn't take matters into their own hands. And he said, thirdly, it's their communal life. The way that they patiently lived and forgave one another. Their communal life. In what way do we live as it that makes sense only if Jesus is king? By the way that we resist temptation. By the way that we refuse retaliation. By the way that we embody a kind of communal life that looks like nothing else the world has ever seen. 
It makes people kind of scratch their heads and say, I, I don't get you Christians. You're weird. And we're like, I know, want to join? <laughs> this week I was thinking about a couple stories. I saw a community newsletter in which a neighbor had written about a, one of the families that attends New Life downtown. And they wrote in this community letter a one-page article that said, the best neighbors ever. And it was about one of you. And they said, here's what happened. My husband got cancer, and he was so sick, and had, needed all this treatment, and we didn't know what to do. And these neighbors rallied a group to bring meals to us every day. And they said, sometimes, the wife is writing, she said, sometimes I'd be outside trying to shovel snow by myself because my husband was too weak to do it. And the, the neighbor, this family from here, jumped out of the car and grabbed the shovel and refused to let me continue. And she finished the work of shoveling the rest of the snow. She said they would come in, they would pray for us. She said one time, because of the chemo treatment, we had to give my husband shots. And she's like, I just couldn't do it. I, it was too hard. And this family had a son who was in medical school who came over and volunteered and did, gave the, administered the shots. And she said, I've never experienced anything like it. These are the best neighbors ever. And I was like, yes. Yes. I was thinking this week about David and Marie Works. Nine and a half years ago, they lost two teenage daughters out in the parking lot at New Life Church because a gunman came in and opened fire. Heartbroken parents. And yet, a month or so after it, they met in Pastor Brady's office for lunch with the parents of the gunman who had also taken his life before that day was over. And they, these two sets of parents, both who had lost a child, two children, one because something was wrong and he was a murderer that day and the other because their daughters were the innocent victims. And these two parents sit together, two sets of parents sit together over a meal, speak to one another, pray for one another. David and Marie saying, we forgive you. We know you must be grieving too. Friends, this kind of behavior does not make sense unless you believe that Jesus is king. Unless you believe there is another king who really rules the world, who will call all other rulers to account. There is another king who will truly bring about justice for the oppressed. And so everything we do now is a way of pointing to that king and that kingdom. See, some of us, I think one of the, one of the things that's happened to us over the course of 2,000 years is we have one group of of Christians who says, you know what it looks like to live like Jesus is king? It means there's going to be miracles. We want to see healing because Jesus reigns. We're like, Great. And then another group that says, we just want to see souls saved and sins forgiven because Jesus is healed. And the other group says, we want to see the poor taken care of and the hungry fed. And in our day, those are three different groups of Christians. Like, oh, those charismatics. Oh, those evangelicals. Oh, those liberals. And the early Christians said, all of us live under the reign of King Jesus. And when Jesus is king, it's good news for the poor. It's good news for the sick. It's good news for the guilty. When Jesus is king, sins are forgiven, the sick are healed, and the hungry are fed. Would you bow your heads this morning?